Welcome to TTM Cast, your sports collectibles podcast with Jeff Baker and Drew Pelto. Sponsored by Certified Sports Guarantee. Go to csgcards.com for sports card grading for the win. And by sportscollectorsdaily.com. If it happens in the hobby, you'll find it on sportscollectorsdaily.com. And now, here's our host, Jeff Baker. Hello, everybody, and welcome to TTM Cast. We have a very special show for you this week. We're just going to do our interview segment. Drew and I are at the National. We will be back with our regular show next week with all the fun segments, returns, and TTM Cast stamp approval and Baker's Dozen and such. But this week, we had I had the pleasure of talking with former minor league pitcher in the Baltimore Orioles organization. His name is Tim Sommer. He's written a book called Beating About the Bushes, Minor League Baseball in the 60s. And Tim talks about his career, about uh, collecting, and all sorts of other stuff. So please enjoy my interview with former minor league pitcher Tim Sommer, author of Beating About the Bushes. This week's interview is brought to you by Certified Sports Guarantee, csgcards.com for superior sports card certification and grading. Get your sports cards graded by CSG on-site at the National. CSG is thrilled to be your on-site sports card grader at the National. Skip the shipping process and bring your cards to booth 1445, July 27th to 31st in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Also meet the CSG experts, pick up swag, and take part in exclusive show giveaways. We will see you there. For more details, visit csgcards.com. Joining the show from his home in Arizona is former minor league pitcher in the Baltimore Orioles system. His name is Tim Sommer. He is uh, was a right-handed pitcher out of Ohio. He uh, spent a little time at University of uh, Ohio, and he is uh, spent eight years in the Baltimore Orioles organization. And he was a scout. And he's written a book. It's called "Beating About the Bushes," and it talks about his time in the minor leagues in the '60s. I'm going to talk to Tim about his new book and his career. Welcome to the program, Tim. Welcome. Good morning. Good seeing you. Nice to see you as well. Uh, you know, I just finished the book. It's a really fu- fun read. Um, you, you, you wrote a little while ago. What, what inspired you to write the book? A couple of reasons, Jeff. Initially, it was to give the reader a feeling as to what it was like to play without free agency, where you were a slave. Um, on the book cover, I made the comment that the club was a plantation owner you were the slave and there was no hope for uh, escape. You were locked in. Uh, the, the common statement that came from organizations when if you were negotiating a contract was if you don't like what we're offering, go buy a lunch bucket, get a job in a factory and see how you like that, compare it. I, I, I'm not lying, that was used, that phrase or phrases such as that were used all the time. And in the book, I write about the time that I came to spring training unsigned. And and I know uh, from Lou Gorman, who I was negotiating with, I was the first uh, minor league player ever to show up uh, unannounced to negotiate a contract. And I think as a result of uh, this episode, uh, it's what caused Lou after I'd retired to call out of the blue and offer me the general manager's job in Sarasota, Florida. Uh, and he says, I know uh, you can do it. And I turned that down. We had a baby and I was scared about one year contracts and that type of thing. But um, that was really the primary reason about writing the book. But secondary, as it turned out, was about racial problems in America during that time, which was really volatile. And I didn't realize it until I finished writing the book that collectively there were a number of stories that really told the story of what America was like in the mid to late 60s with cities burning, uh, uh, National Guard units, including my own, getting called up to go to cities. And I wrote a little bit about that uh, segment I was in the bullpen in Elmira, New York, and um, enjoying the usual bullpen camaraderie and storytelling. You don't pay any attention to the game. You're just there to you know, yeah. 
BS. <laughs> and the clubhouse boy came out to the bullpen to tell me that my uh, reserve unit had been called up and I was to get there right away. So I went from being in uniform, baseball uniform, to army uniform within an hour and was given instructions as to crowd movement by pointing the bayonet at the throat of a person you're trying to move. And then the final thing, we were issued live ammunition. And as I said in the book, my job was to throw bullets, not fire them. <laughs> Well, Tim, you played from 1963 to 1970. You were at a lot of stops. You were at the Stockton Ports in the Carolina League, the Fox City Foxes in the Midwest League, the Tri-City Adams in the Northwest League, the Elmira Pioneers in the Eastern League, and the Rochester Red Wings in the International League. And that was kind of, and you know, and plus hitting spring training. So you were kind of all over the country in a really turbulent time. Um, it must have been interesting to to just be at the front, you know, have a front seat to all of that. Uh, yes, Jeff, but it, but it becomes a kind of looking back aspect to realize what the heck I went through. When it was happening, you, you were mainly a ball player. That was politics or whatever. That was somebody else's job. Um, some funny things really came out of it, like the time that we were sequestered in Norfolk, Virginia, and they had declared martial law. And we were warned that if we even stepped foot on the street, we were liable to be shot by the, re, the army people that were out on the street. So we hunkered down in the bar and uh, uh, Whitey Herzog was also hunkered down and we closed the bar. Actually, <laughs> we, we went way past curfew a couple of nights. They, as long as they had beer, they just kept serving us. And I heard Whitey tell stories that, you know, that were incredible. And that was part of the fun part. But again, looking back, you realize just how serious the nature was. Yeah, I mean, you, you, told, you told the story in the book about uh, driving through Selma during the, the, the whole time. Oh, yes, right. That, uh, again, that didn't really sink in until later afterwards when you're able to look back in history which is what people do you know they look back and analyze history well all of a sudden i realized i was in the middle of one of the most important elements of the civil rights movement in selma alabama the night the only white woman who was killed during the civil rights movement had been murdered that night as i drove in to Selma to get my, uh, and got my hotel room. And the following day, uh, there was a diner next to the motel and I went there and I was driving a 1960 Corvair with Ohio plates with everything I owned stuffed in the car. I mean, I had an ironing board that ran from the back window to over the gear shift. I had to shift the gears all the way from, uh, from, don't you, don't you wish you had that car now, though? Oh, I would every day. I saw one the other night uh, on TV, and I, I yelled, that's my car. And my wife jumped. She didn't know what the heck I was talking about. But uh, as I pulled in with my Ohio plates visible on the front of the car, I noticed that everybody with a window seat was staring at me as I got out of the car. And I came in to the diner, and I took a seat at the counter. And when I ordered a cup of coffee, the waitress came with a coffee and she slid it at me and coffee went in my lap. And I'm thinking, what the heck is going on? And I had bought a newspaper up front and I opened up and there was the headlines, Freedom Rider Killed by KKK. And that was the, the killing of the lady the night before when she had come back from, with a young black boy that uh, uh, she was trying to help. So she was killed with a shotgun blast through the driver's window. Wow. And uh, again, not realizing until later what the heck, uh, what part this, this held. And uh, there's been a movie made you know, about the march on uh, Pettus Bridge. Uh, very, again, it's a very pivotal moment in uh, civil rights. 
We're speaking with Tim Sommer. Tim uh, has written a book. It's called Beating About the Bush. He wrote it a little while ago. But it's a, uh, a book about his time in minor league baseball in the 60s. He played from 1963 to 1970, primarily in the Baltimore Orioles uh, system. He was a, a pitcher. And we're talking to him about uh, his minor league career and, and uh, what went on in the 60s, uh, you know, in our country. Uh, Tim, you know, one thing that I really garnered from the book uh, is how much uh, – the managers controlled uh, your career and other players' career, and really had a had a uh, y- y- you know had a, a, a direct um, effect on, on where you ended up playing and, and how far you advanced. That's very accurate, Jeff, and um, few people realize that uh, it's assumed that the front office controlled uh, troop movement, if you will. They really didn't. If a manager didn't want you on a ball club, you didn't play for him for whatever reason, good, bad, or indifferent. And that happened to me in uh, spring training of 1966 that Baltimore had hired a couple of years before a manager by the name of Daryl Johnson, who had had a mediocre major league career, but being a catcher, they're in short demand. So he had a fairly long career, but not, not successful. And uh, I was out, uh, well, uh, getting ahead of myself. I had a great spring training and the final outing I had uh, through three innings of shutout ball and Cal Ripken Sr. sought me out to tell me or congratulate me that I had made the Elmira AA Farm Club. And that was great. You know, I'm moving upward. And I'd had, uh, you know, the back-to-back years before that, my combined record was uh, 26 and 9, including the winner being the winner of two championship games in the Midwest League and also the Northwest League. Uh, in that particular game, I beat Blue Moon and Odom. And three days later, he's in the big, big leagues with the athletics. And I'm, you know, driving back to uh, Ohio. But uh, I went out in that night to celebrate my, my status, if you will, in the organization. I'd made the double-A ball club. And the, the player I was out with, Howie Stethers, he and I were at a small bar in Fernandina Beach, Florida. And in comes Daryl Johnson, the manager. And he is very drunk and he is looking for somebody. And that somebody was a young, very attractive local girl who had come into the bar five minutes before and sat at our table as we were obviously not the rednecks that she was used to. <laughs> and she told Howie and I the story of Daryl trying to pick, pick up on her. And that's what Daryl saw when he came in the bar. He half drank a beer, bounced off the door going out. And the next morning, when they read the rosters off, which were read by John Sherholtz, by the way, who went on to you know, a great uh, career uh, in front office with Atlanta. And Howie and I both were gone from the Elmira roster. Johnson had control. He called the shots. He didn't want us on his team. And we went elsewhere. In my case, I was sent back to Stockton, where I started three years before, after going 26 and nine. And I had no control over it. There was no free agency. Who am I gonna complain to? Uh, The guy that I complained to was one of my best friends in management at the time. Well, uh, for a long time was uh, George Bamberger. Sure. And I saw George, coming out of the clubhouse and I went up to him and, you know, I told him what had happened and I was going to quit after, even after the success, I, it wasn't fair and something should be done, but couldn't be done. And George wisely told me to suck it up, go to Stockton, do the best you can. This guy will be gone, meaning Daryl Johnson uh, next year. And he was prophetic. Johnson won the Eastern League pennant by a record number of games, and the following year was fired. I don't know the details. I never was able to find out. Uh, There's a longtime uh, Elmira sports writer by the name of Al Millette, 
who uh, gave Ernie Davis his nickname, The Express, by the way. And uh, Al and I were very close. And right before his death, we uh, were communicating. And Al shared with me that Daryl Johnson was the most disliked manager that Elmira ever had in the 80-year history of, of the ball club. But uh, I, you know, I was locked in. He controlled me. Not front office. Nobody stuck up for me in the front office. It was Daryl Johnson had control. And right. And was, I think unless you had that cachet of being a number one pick where they invested a lot of money in you, right? It was kind of, you were at the whim of the manager. Oh, absolutely. Well, if you remember, you know, the draft didn't start until 1965. Right. And I had already played a couple of years. So the influence of where you ranked in the draft uh, wasn't as great as it is now. Uh, what really was the measuring stick was the dollar amount that you signed for as a bonus. And a good example of that is um, Jim Palmer and I in 1964 were both playing A-level a baseball. He was in Aberdeen and I was uh, in Fox Cities. And I beat him in 10 out of 13 statistical categories, wins, losses, strikeouts uh, per game, you name it. And the following year, 1966, Palmer's pitching in the World Series. Right. And I'm back trying to prove myself. Uh, now Palmer signed for 75 grand. I signed for 2,500 on a contingency, meaning I had to stick somewhere for 90 days, which I did. He looked like a ball player. Uh, he looked pretty good in his underwear, apparently, too. He made a lot of money <laughs> from jockey. And I'd catch my wife looking at my Sports Illustrated trying to you know, catch a glimpse of him. And uh, uh, he was force-fed because that's what happened to the big bonus babies. They, the scout or the organization didn't want to appear deficient in their evaluation. So here we go. Push him up. You know, he's... he's he had a good year. He's got the big money. He's got the name. He looks like a ball player. What do we do with this skinny guy uh, that wears black horn rimmed glasses that had nicknames of Clark Kent, the librarian, you know, that type of thing. So each year I had to prove myself and Baltimore didn't know what to do with me. I kept winning. And, uh, you know, that's how I progress. Now in the book, I write about... Uh, the first potential strike in baseball was actually 1969. And very few people know anything about it. And that was one of the reasons I wrote about it. I uh, had gone to winter ball without knowing what I was. I was a possible strike breaker. They didn't tell us that. And I wasn't told that until I got to the big league camp. I, I'd gone from winter ball where I had a 116 ERA and invited to the major league camp. And it wasn't until I arrived in Miami that I was told what purpose I was there. And we, I think we had five other non-roster pitchers that had been invited. And we each were asked if we would cross the picket line and, and you know, to play in the big leagues, if yep. there was indeed a strike. Well, I would have, you know, cleaned up uh, sunflower seeds to, you know, get to the big leagues. And, you know, so obviously myself and the other players, um, they always said we, we said we would, but the strike did not materialize. Gains were made. Uh, we had Marvin Miller come to our clubhouse in Miami to explain what the union under his leadership had gained. And there were two big uh, items. One was they got the reduction for qualifying down from five years to four. They had used Satchel Page as the lever because Satch at that time only had four years uh, accumulated time. And they didn't want uh, Satch to be on Skid Row and baseball, you know, ignoring this legendary uh, black player. So they got it down to four. And the other was that they had gained dental benefits for the first time. And this is where it became comical. Miller is standing in the middle of our clubhouse. We're all in uniform and he's explaining this. He gets done and he asks, uh, are there any questions? 
And the only person to raise his hand was Earl Weaver. And uh, Marvin says, yes, Earl. And Earl asked an innocent question. He said, are uh, wives covered under this plan? Well, Dave McNally was straight across from me in the room and he could get away with it being the veteran he was. All of a sudden he yelled, Barracuda. Well, Earl's second wife had an overbite and that was the player's nickname was Barracuda. Did and he know that? Well, yes, he did. Okay. And it started like a wave around the clubhouse, you know, for laughter, everybody looking at each other. You know, can I laugh? Can I laugh? I'm a rookie. You know, what am I allowed to do? Weaver turned bright red, Miller not knowing what the humor was all about, but knew that everything was blowing up in front of him, said, well, I'll be in the parking lot if anybody has a question. And with that, the meeting was over. Weaver didn't talk to McNally for two or three days, but Weaver being Weaver, he he was a great evaluator of talent and he knew he couldn't lose Dave McNally. So they amended fences and life went on. Was he tough to play for? Meaning Weaver? Yeah. No, he was uh, extremely fair. I'll give you an example. Dave Leonard, uh, at the AAA level in Rochester, had, had a tremendous year. And Dave pitched a little bit in the big leagues. Uh, he, I think he won like 15 games for Earl. And there was a game when uh, Earl came out to the mound to study Leonard and dictated that he had to throw outside, don't let this guy hit anything. And Leonard threw a great slider off the plate by the you know six inches, seven inches, and the guy hit a rope to right field and a run scored. And Weaver went ballistic against Leonard and uh, came out, yanked him and everything. Well, the following day, Weaver got uh, hold of the catcher, whoever it was at that time, to ask him where the pitch was. And when the catcher told him that Leonard did exactly what he was told to do and a perfect pitch, Earl came up and apologized to Leonard that night at the ballpark. And that's the way Earl was. If he was wrong, he would admit it. But if he was right or he felt he was right, you know, watch out for Earl because he's going to have his way. And a funny story about Earl in his minor league playing days, uh, he uh, got into a fight one time. Something happened in the game and uh, Earl charged. The, well, I know they were uh, the opposite team was yelling something at him from the dugout. Earl charged the opposing team's dugout, fully expecting his own teammates to follow him you know, into the fray. Yep. And nobody came to his defense and they beat the crap out of Earl and threw him out you know, of the dugout and <laughs> told him to go away. But he, he was a character. I mean, uh, I never had the chance to play for Earl. I just followed him up the ladder as uh, he went up. Uh, I, I went up with another manager. Like I played three different years for Cal Ripken Sr., yep. A, double A, and AAA. And without a doubt, Rip was my favorite manager. He was incredible in handling people. And, we, and I didn't realize until much, much later, Cal was damn near the same age we all were. But he had such a commanding presence and being in control and knowledge of baseball. Uh, you'd follow him through a brick wall. He, he was just tremendous. We're speaking with Tim Sommer. Tim uh, played in the Baltimore Orioles minor league for eight years from 1963 to 1970. He has a great book out. It's called Beating About the Bushes. It's all about his career in the minor leagues in the 60s. It's available on Amazon. Check it out. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned Cal Ripken Jr., uh, Sr. as one of your favorite managers. Uh, was there anyone, was there a pitching coach or anyone else that really uh, – took you under his wing and and really uh, helped you with your career? <laughs> That's funny, Jeff. Back in the day, there were pitching coaches. They didn't teach anybody anything. It was a hand-me-down job or a good old boy job. I, I okay. think I described it better. They were handed out to people that couldn't do anything else out of baseball. There was one that did some teaching, and that was George Bamberger. George really cared for 
his uh, youngins, as, as, as he called them. But uh, my first pitching coach was Burley Grimes, you know, the last of the legalized spitball. Yeah, pitchers, sure. And in the Hall of Fame. And for whatever reason, Burley took a liking to me. And he would come into Elmira or wherever. I mean, he did travel around, but all he did was come in and have dinner on his expense account and tell stories. And he would take me out. Uh, I'll never forget, we were on the road in Clinton, Iowa. And he took me out to dinner. And I listened to nonstop stories for an hour about famous people, Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth. It was a living history book. You know, what am I going to say? I just listened. Right. But he didn't teach anybody anything. You know, he didn't try to teach anybody a spitball. Uh, funny story that didn't make it into the book. Um, in 1965, playing in the Northwest League for Cal Ripken Sr., I decided I had to come up with a, another pitch. And because I taught myself everything. I taught myself sliders, uh, curveball I had from throwing a tennis ball against my grandmother's front porch steps. I already had the curve. I taught myself a cutter. Uh, but anyway, uh, I decided that extra pitch was going to be a spitball. We had a couple of couple of guys on the club that were throwing one, and you know, making no bones about it. Uh, one of which was Bobby Darwin, who was the, the high, highest paid bonus to a black ball player when the California Angels signed him for, I think, around a hundred grand in 1961 or 62. And Bobby, his spitball uh, was very effective. He had learned how to mask it, a la you know Gaylord Perry. Well, we're playing in Lodi, California, which was a, just a short drive from Stockton. And I'm lockering next to him. And he starts mumbling and grumbling. And I said, what's wrong, Bobby? He says, I forgot my jelly. Because the, the, the substance to use at the time was KY jelly. And it's greaseless, odorless, just a little dab will do you. And you put it up behind your ear, your right ear, and you picked it up that way. You go through your shenanigans and you reach up, touch your ear, and you have KY jelly. Well, I had a jar of Vicks VapoRub. And uh, I said, well, I don't know if this will work. He said, well, let me try it. So he's pitching that night. And we couldn't tell from the dugout what the pitches were. You know, we were too far away from, from to really see it. But the first time the Darwin came up the bat, all of a sudden, there's jawboning going on between he and the umpire. The umpire calls timeout and he, all of a sudden he rips the uh, hat off of Bobby and he throws Bobby out of the game. Well, here's <laughs> what happened. When Bobby came up to bat, the umpire says, man, Darwin, you got a hell of a cold. And Bobby says, I don't have a cold. And that's what set the umpire that's off. It. <laughs> <laughs> it was Vicks Vapor Rub and not the odorless, greaseless kind. That's funny. Well, you you, but, um, you spent uh beginning of your career as a starter, but you kind of were kind of converted into a reliever. Was that because of injury or is that because of um, you thought you had a better chance of getting to the big leagues or, or why did well, you convert from again, it wasn't, it wasn't my choice. It was okay. my ability. I, uh, I was so skinny. They used to kid me that I never have a sore arm because I couldn't pull a muscle. I didn't have any, <laughs> but, I, but I could throw every day. And Baltimore saw that. So uh, the first uh, game in 1967 in the Eastern League, you know, again, now I outlived Daryl Johnson. I'm at the double-A level, and I throw a three-hit shutout against the Pirates Farm Club in York. The following day, the manager calls me in the office. And he says, I just got off the phone with uh, Baltimore. And I thought, wow, you know, I throw a shutout, and I'm going to the big leagues. And he says, uh, they want to convert you to short relief and they want to send you down to learn how to do it. And I went ballistic in right. his office. You know, all the emotions just came pouring out. And he called me down. He said, oh, no way. I convinced them to let you stay here to, to learn, to see if you can handle it. Because it is a completely different mindset sure. to go from starting to the possibility of be, being in the ball game, ball game every single night. Well, I had the best year of my career. I led the... Uh, League in appearances with 52 games. I was 11 and 5, 21 saves, uh, ERA under three. 
but again, no place to go. Rochester ahead of me was winning. Baltimore was starting their run with all the talent they had. And again, no free agency. So, you know, you're locked in. Uh, but I, I enjoyed relieving. I really did. It, it was an adrenaline rush to come in and put out the fire. You know, I had a lot of great press back in the day, <laughs> in those days. You know, in your book, you have a, a chapter about Reggie Jackson. It seems like, I don't know, it seems like the last like four or five books that I've read has a, has a Reggie Jackson <laughs> chapter. Yeah, but I know you're referring to Mike Floyd's book. Uh, yeah. Mike has written a, a tremendous book and you did a show with him. And Mike's uh, book is Bush League Blues. I haven't read the entire book, but I've read portions of it. Yeah, the, this, my story about Reggie, um, kind of classic. It's a typical low minor type of story that you know comes out and nobody knows about it. Reggie had signed for quite a bit of money that Charlie Finley had given him coming out of the University of Arizona. And you, you see bonus babies every day you play and you don't know who's gonna be successful and who isn't. So Reggie playing in his home park of Modesto, California, he hits a home run off our starting pitcher uh in a game and the following night i'm starting so our manager harry malberg conducted a quick uh meeting between me and my catcher and harry never called meetings about anything and i'm thinking okay what's this all about he orders me to hit jackson to retaliate for that home run and if i didn't it was going to cost me money at that time, I was probably making, this is 66, I was probably making eight or $900 a month. And whatever the fine was, probably typically 25 bucks or 50 bucks was a lot yeah, of money. That was a good, good chunk of change. Yeah, and I, I couldn't afford that. So the only way I could get out of it, I got a hold of my catcher, Cliff Johnson, and we had our own private meeting. And Cliff was a black ball player, a very friendly type of guy. And I uh, figured that he will be the conduit between me and, and Reggie to tell him the predicament I was in. And sure enough, well, I told Cliff, I said, look, if this guy, I don't know who he is, but if he gets up uh, with nobody on, let him know that I've got a hitting. So as it happened, Reggie let off the second inning. And uh, I see Cliff starting to talk. I see his lips moving. And Jackson kind of half steps out listening to Cliff and the umpire starts leaning in, listening to the conversation going on. And finally, Cliff just nods, nods his head. He had told Reggie the whole deal and I was gonna hit him with a medium fastball in his butt where it'll hurt the least, right? right? So the game is on, Cliff nods. I go into a windup and Jackson panics and starts bailing out. <laughs> and it was like trying to hit one of the bears in an arcade game, you know, going back and forth with, with an electronic rifle. I had to figure out where he was going to end up in order to hit him. And I plunked him perfectly right in the cheek. Okay, mission accomplished. Save my money. Everybody's happy, except Jackson charges the mound. <laughs> oh, crap. Now I'm in trouble. Yeah, because Reggie was a pretty big guy, right? Yeah, well, he was he was very compared, compared to you. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Well, that's for sure. Everybody was. And uh what what I noticed immediately, Jackson was laughing. Come <laughs> running out to the mile. What, what kind of fight you're gonna be in where the other guy's laughing at you? And we he gets to the mound and I stood my ground. I gambled that this was some kind of setup. I'm not sure what but I was gonna survive. He's dragging me around and flopping me on the ground and you know making fake punches into the ground. And uh, my catcher, Cliff, had come running out. He's laughing. <laughs> and the final thing was the umpire is laughing. Both benches empty, not knowing what the deal was. And all 50 guys stop because everybody is laughing. And that was it, the flight over and Momberg, my manager's in the uh, dugout yelling out at Jackson, take that you son of a bitch, this is what pro ball is all about. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> mission accomplished, okay, let's play a game.
Too bad there's no film of that, huh? Oh God, yeah, yeah. No. I'd pay a million million dollars for that one. Don Don Baylor was a teammate of yours, and he was he was known as being a tough guy. And even when he came up to the majors leagues, he always led the league in getting hits. But you play you played with him. He wasn't really the toughest guy you ever played with, huh? No, Billy Scripture was. Billy Scripture. And that's yeah. a portion of the book. But Don was the nicest guy. In the eight years I played, there was nobody any nicer than Don Baylor. And that history is proving that to be true also. I know a lot has come out about Don. Um, we were roommates in uh, Rochester. We had both been called up. And uh, he uh, he was from Austin, Texas. And Austin at the time was totally segregated. You had white baseball leagues. You had black baseball leagues. Well, Don was only 18, and I think I at that point was probably about 26. And we'd stay up all night long talking about everything. He was very intelligent, uh, well-versed. We could talk everything about segregation, politics, baseball, girls, you name it. And we stayed at a flea bag of a hotel downtown Rochester called the Cadillac Hotel, which was anything but, but it was very cheap. Uh, in winter ball, 1968, we played together. And uh, I'm hanging over the fence with my buddy, George Bamberger, and Don hits a long home run. And George shared this story with me. This did not get into the book. I didn't know how or should, whether I should put it in, but here's the story. Bamberger told me that the scout assigned to go and, and sign uh, Don had been authorized to go as high as $75,000 signing bonus wow. without even having to call back to get approval for more. And he used the race card, <clears throat> race card in reverse. He told Don, he says, you know, you haven't played against the white boys, inferring that the white league was superior to the black when it was just the opposite. And he signed Don for only 25 grand and got a $5,000 bonus for screwing Baylor out of the money. And again, I wrestled uh, with putting that in the book, but it, it didn't make it in. Maybe the second book, uh, but uh, not the first one. Yeah, I mean, you have so, so many stories, I'm sure. One of the, the, the funny stories that, that I liked as a collector is that, you know, you were at a card show and, and uh, you saw Jim Palmer there and he's signing autographs and you kind of surprised him. That was, that was that fun for you? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, uh, it proved to my cynical son that I actually played baseball. <laughs> that, was, that was a challenge. My son told me before the, uh, the, the, the show, it was a banquet, and they had a, a pre-banquet signing of all the celebrities. They had about eight celebrities of various things from race car drivers to football players to baseball players. And as I'm queuing up in line with my son off my right shoulder, he whispers to me, he says, Dad, he says, I'll believe all your bullshit about playing professional baseball if Palmer recognizes you. Well, the challenge had been issued, the gauntlet thrown down. So purposefully, I kind of hide behind a rather large man in front of me so Palmer can't see me coming. And he signs for this guy. The guy leaves. I walk up. And he looks up at me. He goes, Slim, how the hell are you doing? Now I hear my son to my right going, well, I'll be goddamn, he really did play. <laughs> <laughs> so we chatted uh, to the extent that we were holding the line up. And we realized, you know, we had to get on with life and let the line come up. And so we said our goodbyes. Do you have much memorabilia from your playing days? Did you get to keep uniforms back in the day, or did you collect uh, uh, autographs from your team or anything like that? No, I stole them. <laughs> you stole them? You did? Yeah, I've got Jim Ryerson's uh, Brewers shirt hanging in my locker or in my closet right behind me. Uh, I, when I scouted for Milwaukee, I put together a couple of tryout camps, and they had given me a, a uniform to wear you know, to be official of Milwaukee Brewers. And uh, as a part-time scout, you didn't pay, you get paid crap. So I decided that my pay for that was going to be his uniform. So I have that hanging. 
I played winter ball in 1966 in something called the Peninsula League. And we were supposed to get paid like, uh, I don't know, so much per game, like 50 bucks. We never got paid. So I, I took that uniform. So I have an old style Orioles uniform and a Jim Ryerson's uh, Brewers uniform. So How about autographs? Did you collect autographs? Did I get autographs from No, that, and that was, uh, I never felt good asking another professional baseball player for an autograph. I've, yep. I've, I, I, was, I was embarrassed by even thinking about doing that. And that angered my wife because, you know, quite a few times I had the opportunity to do that and I didn't do it. Um, the other memorabilia that I have is I have the trophy for being the MVP player in Appleton, Wisconsin in 64 when I was 13 and two and we won the Midwest League. And I've got uh, one other trophy of some kind. Did you and have championship not... rings? Because you were on a number of championship teams in the minors. Yeah. Uh, no, that's kind of a sore point. You have to realize, Jeff, that when I was playing, the clubs were so poor in the minor leagues, they didn't have any money. In 65 in the Northwest League, we came to the park one day and the gates were locked. The club had run out of money and they had borrowed from every bank in the state of Washington to pay off the one asking for their money back to the point there were no more banks in Washington to borrow from. So we hung around the ballpark for an hour and all of a sudden they opened up the gates. They had found a bank in Alaska to lend them enough money to finish the season. And so we could finish out the year. But there, there was no money up and down. Uh, Baltimore, the lower the league, the more subsidization money came from the big league club. And in Stockton, my first year, um, we were always curious about what you made. How much did you get? What's your monthly salary? And Stockton was so poor that when you got a paycheck, which was every two weeks, you had to go to one particular bank, to one teller, and cash your check. And they kept a running tab on what the account was, and it was diminishing. And if they ran out of money, it was like in the old time movies, they put a sign up, you know, closed. And you couldn't cash your check until more money came in. So, and we would, we would cue right off the shoulder of the guy ahead of you to listen to the count of how much money, 20, 40, 60. So you could find out what that guy was making in relation to you. Yeah, <laughs> a, different, a different time. We're seeing, yeah. with Tim, we're seeing with Tim Sommer. Tim uh, played in minor league baseball eight seasons in the Baltimore Orioles organization from 1963 to 1970. He uh, wrote a book about his exploits. It's called Beating About the Bushes. Uh, the minor league baseball in the 60s. It's a really fun read. It's all about his uh, Tim's time in the minor leagues. It talks about uh, race relations in this country. It talks about what's going on, what's going on in the country. It talks about all the colorful characters that he played with. It's a really uh, fun read, and I really highly recommend it. It is available on Amazon. Um, you know, Tim, you you retired at a young age. You know, you're only 27 when you were, when was your last season in, in uh, baseball before you went on to scout part-time. Um, was there, was that a physical reason that you retired or you just had had enough and had to go make a living or what, what, what was it? Well, why did you finally decide to hang it out? It was very emotional, Jeff. I was married and we had a baby and the worry about security just overwhelmed me. And I'll never forget. My wife was a telephone operator and I'm at home babysitting, babysitting our daughter, Chris. And I actually stared at the telephone for at least a half an hour. The telephone was going to be the method I used to retire. I picked up the phone. I called Kansas City. Uh, they had bought my contract my final year. And I called Lou Gorman. And Lou had come from Baltimore over to Kansas City. And eventually went on and was uh, GM of the Red Sox for 10 years. Yep. And a good friend of mine. I mean, he, Lou really liked me. And I picked the phone up and I called and I retired. <clears throat> Lou said to me, he says, are you sure? I said, Lou, when I make a decision of this import, I don't look back. I look forward. Life has to move on. And with that, I retired. So I figured, okay, you know, 
that's over with, what's next? So I got a job in a uh, factory making auto parts in Elmire, New York as a customer service rep. And uh, about two weeks after getting the job, I got a phone call from Lou and out of the blue, he offered me, imagine this, the minor league pitching coach job for the Kansas City Royals. Out of the blue, nothing had ever been discussed. I had the same problem now. What do I do? One-year contract, baby at home, leave them for spring training, season, winter ball, come home That's for hard. a couple of weeks. I couldn't do it. So I, I turned that down. Two weeks after that, I'm in the factory and I get paged. And uh, of course, everybody in the factory knew who I was and my background story and everything else. And the operator says, Kansas City Royals holding. Well, I had half the factory shut their machines down to come eavesdrop on the conversation. Lou offered me the general manager's job in Sarasota, Florida at three times what I was making as a clerk, but again, one-year contract. He said, Tim, I know you don't have any business experience, but I know you're a quick learner and you can handle the job, believe me. Same discussion with my wife, same result. I turned it down. And that was the last time that baseball came calling. Yeah, I mean, you know what? If you if you kind of look back, right? If you were if you were born 20 years later and you were starting to play in the in the 90s instead of the 60s, um, your career would have been different, don't you think? Oh, completely different. Absolutely. Because you, uh, you would have been making money as a minor league or even a little more money. And there would have been more teams and more jobs available. And just looking at your numbers, uh, you know, obviously I didn't see a pitch, but looking at your numbers, I don't I don't see how you wouldn't have at least gotten a shot. Um, that's the opinion of many people outside of baseball. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, head scratching, just as you analyze you know, what happened. Uh, the only negative statistics are the AAA record where I've got a you know, pretty high ERA. Well, with yeah, but few, no, Tim, it, even, you know, I'm looking at your last couple of years, right? And maybe you didn't, you weren't 15 and three, but you still had the strikeouts. You still had, you know, you weren't walking anybody as a reliever. You would have yeah, actually, actually in AAA, I averaged uh, more strikeouts per game than any other year. I, you would, they would, there would have been a, there would have been a job for you somewhere. I would have thought. Well, it, the, the key would have been free agency. Um, they did establish free agency for minor leaguers. It was slightly different. You had to play, I believe at that time, seven years in order to gain the free agency. And that would have been the difference maker would be the ability to shop your uh, ability to every organization and see what happens. And Every, not every organization was a powerhouse, so somebody probably would have taken a chance, uh, but we'll never know. You know, didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, but you look. you know, obviously you had a fun career in terms of playing playing a, a, in a lot of different places. You played against a lot of great players and with a lot of characters and a lot of great players, and you had a lot of great stories to share. And we're talking to Tim Sommer. Tim has wrote a great book. It's called Beating About the Bushes. It's available on Amazon. And it really chronicles his time in the minor leagues from 1960 to 1963 to 1970. We're just talking to Tim about, about the book. One of, Tim, one of the really funny stories um, was that, um, you know, drugs in terms of steroids and all that stuff wasn't prevalent when you were, when you were in the baseball but greenies were people were taking greenies amphetamines to and you you took greenies one time <laughs> it was just a, it's just a funny story oh i i think i still feel the effects today <laughs> <laughs> yeah what happened uh everybody was not everybody but in baseball it really was becoming a common thing and in our case, our greenies came from our friendly uh, team doctor, Dr. Velatis. And what he did, he collected the samples that he was constantly getting from pharmaceutical agents for diet pills, which was speed. And, uh, you know, speed up the metabolism, burn off the fat. Uh, that, that was a theory anyway. So we had a great big old jar. I mean, it probably had 500 pills in it. And if you were feeling a little low, you just went and grabbed a, a greenie and popped it and you know, you went on playing. 
and the uh, we had a catcher by the name of Fred Kendall who went on to the big for leagues. the Indians and Red Sox, yeah, Padres, and his son, you know, J Jason, Jason you know, tremendous career. Well, Fred was a very good looking single guy, he burnt the candle at both ends, and I'll never forget one time we were playing in. Uh, I believe it was Binghamton, and our trainer, Bob Jones, had forgot to pack the greenies on this road trip, and I witnessed this explosion underneath the grandstands between Freddie and Bob, yelling, God damn it, you, I'm catching a doubleheader today, get me a greenie. So Jonesy had to negotiate with the trainer of the other club to get enough greenies to get Fred through the game. So anyway, uh, I'm in the bullpen one night. Again, I'm, I'm back. I'm short relieving. So the possibility every night of coming in. And I had been a naughty boy the night before. I don't know what I had done or where I'd been, but I'm half asleep on a bench out in the bullpen, not even taking part in storytelling or anything. I'm just slumped out there. Well, I figured I can't fall asleep on a bench, so I got to do something. So without telling anyone, I went back into the clubhouse and not knowing what the dosage was, I took two instead of one. Yeah, you're and like could, 150 pounds soaking wet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was my max weight. It was 150. And coming back, walking back from the clubhouse to the bullpen, it kicked in. I get to the bullpen, I can't sit down. I'm pacing back and forth like a tiger in a cage. You know, can't wait to get in. And I get the call, the skinny, the, my, my signal, because there were no uh, telephones in the bullpens in those days, is the manager putting his hands together, indicating the skinny guy, and then putting, uh, making a circle with both hands and putting it up to his eyes, glasses. The skinny guy with glasses. That was my signal. <laughs> so now I'm in the game. And I, I should have known I was in trouble because I ran in. I, never in my eight years did I ever run into a game. I enjoyed the pop and circumstance of here I come to save the day. And uh, but I come running in and uh, Ripken was, Cal Ripken was my manager. Rip hands me the ball and he says, uh, pick up the guy who you're throwing to at second. And I did. And my catcher was Johnny Burroughs, and John uh, signals a curveball, first pitch, and I shake it off. And he gives me the curveball again, which was a proper pitch at the time for the batter. I shake it off again. I got to throw my heat. <laughs> I'm throwing harder than Nolan Ryan, Ryan Dern, you name Bob Feller. I'm throwing harder than all these guys. So finally, I get the fastball. I crank up and I throw a pitch and the batter is so far ahead of it, he hits it out of the ballpark, nine miles foul, left field. And I, I remember standing on the mound and mentally shaking my head, going, what just happened? I just threw this ball that had to be having flames and smoke coming out the back end. And this guy just yanked me out of the park. Well, all of a sudden I realized my mechanics are so screwed up because of the effect of the drug. Yeah, because everything's done. faster than it's yeah. supposed to be. And yeah, exactly. Upper body ahead of the lower. And I somehow struggled out of the inning and uh, was replaced by somebody in the next inning. And never again did I try that. No, 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 it's um was it did surprise you as a young young guy going in um how prevalent uh, alcohol was and uh, it really seems to be the lifeblood of baseball and every book I read about that, that, you know, the guys are going out to bars and they're drinking and the, you know, it's just a big, it's a, it seems to be a, almost like a big par frat party. Is that, that surprised you? Did it, did it surprise me? No. Cause oh, that was okay. the history of the game. Yeah. That had been going on, you know, the, uh, boozing on railway cars going from Chicago to New York, you know, no, it didn't surprise me at all. And plus I, I witnessed it. Uh, and you become part of that culture very quickly. And that was the norm. If you're on the road, you were seeking female companionship on the road, where are you going to find it? Not in the church at night. You're going to find it in a bar. 
So then it became a game of who finds the best bar with the least competition from your fellow teammates with the best looking girls. And that information was almost sold on the black market from player to player. It was incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it seems like so much fun. I feel I'm like, geez, I missed out on all that, you know. <laughs> I should have played, played minor league baseball. Not that I was any good, but. <laughs> well, fortunately, being, youth has the metabolism and the strength and the spirit to survive that. Uh, I'll get, I'll, here's a name drop I just thought of. I dated my wife the season of 1968. She was an Elmira girl. And she went to Hawaii with her girlfriends for a vacation. Came back and she's telling me all about her trip. And then she talks about this bar that she was in where a professional baseball player, her team was there, most of them drinking. And this guy tried to pick her up. Well, she didn't know that much about baseball at that time. And she was trying to, well, she told me that this player had a World Series ring. And I'm getting a little skeptical, you know, but she describes the ring and everything and what it said on it and everybody, everything else. All of a sudden it dawned on me, the guy trying to pick her up was Don Larson. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he let her wear his ring. That was the, the come on you know, for the night. He was never successful in picking her up, but, you know, she had that story to share with me and I, it didn't bother me at all because I knew, you know, I knew what the heck was going on. Did you, you mentioned Mike Floyd and we, you know, we had him on the show a couple weeks ago. Did you, did your paths ever cross uh, professionally? Did you get to face him as a pitcher? No, he was a generation um, uh, behind me. Okay. So as I was uh, ending, he was beginning his career, but okay. in reading the uh, excerpts I have read of the book, uh, it didn't seem that much had changed from my era to his era, as far as the, I'll call it goings on behind the scenes, you know, things that, uh, well, you live such a, a different lifestyle than everybody else, you, you're bound to encounter those types of things. It's just nature takes over, you know, and you're, you're, you can't believe that you're getting paid to do what you, wanted to do all your life right and, and the love of the game and it's just so much fun and that's what i want guys pick up a copy of the book it's called beating about the bushes it's written by tim sommer s-o-m-m-e-r it is available on amazon when you type in beating about the bushes you'll find the book it is available it's all about tim's uh time in the minor league baseball in the 1960s really from 1963 to 1970 uh he talks about Jim Palmer and Reggie Jackson and Don Baylor and all and Cal Ripken uh, Sr. and uh, Lou Gorman and all sorts of other cool guys and a, a lot of guys that are characters that that were our minor league legends and we were talking about it earlier that there's not um there's no a lot of film of these guys so the, it's really only firsthand stories like Tim that you can uh, learn about these guys and share some really uh, good times and fun times. And Tim also talks about what's going on in the, the country during that time. We had the Vietnam War and we also had all the race uh, problems and also in drugs and the counterculture and all sorts of stuff that's going on in the 60s that Tim really covers in the book. So check it out. It's called Beating About the Bushes. It's available on Amazon. It is by Tim Sommer, S-O-M-M-E-R. Uh, I'm sure if you purchase a book, it will, we can get away. Tim will sign it for you, right, Tim? <laughs> yeah, I think there is a way. There used to be a way that you can order on Amazon, and the order comes directly to me, and I sign the copy and send it out. That's the way it used to be. I'm not sure if they still do it that way. All right, well, if you get a... Uh, if you get a, uh, if you make, a, if you buy the book, let me know, and I'll send, I'll get you out Tim's address, and Tim will, Tim will gladly sign it for you. It's a really fun book. Tim, anything I, I'd like to add before I let you go? Yeah, I, I would. Um, we briefly talked about this before, Jeff. Is that document I sent you from the employment agency? Sure. Denying my request for unemployment. Um, this is a really important element that went into achieving free agency that a lot of people are not aware of it. 
at the time, you did not get paid at all, except for the playing season. You didn't get paid in spring training. You had to live on your own money. Uh, you usually went into debt through the ball club. You borrowed money to get an apartment, down payment, uh, utilities, that type of thing. And I had, and plus you had to qualify under the rules of each state as to the amount of time you had to be employed in New York state. It was eight, or excuse me, six months or 180 days. Well, you always kind of fell short because the season wasn't quite that long. One year, we I qualified because we were in the playoffs against Binghamton, and we had a, an extended period of time of rainouts, which pushed the number of days to 181, and I qualified. So I filed, and I went out to California to live. Um, I got uh, a page. I got a check from the state of New York. Life is good. I can afford my apartment. And after two or three weeks, I got a letter from the state of New York saying they had made an error in the evaluation of my claim and that I was no longer uh, going to receive checks. And what they did, they cited the uh, a cannery in Oregon that had fishermen under contract but the fishermen didn't get paid if they didn't go out, like if it was, you know, stormy or that type of right, thing. Sure. And they they had been ruled against that they could not collect unemployment. I countered, I filed an appeal, and in doing my research, I countered with the situation of Hollywood movie stars, that you know, classic cases of them, you know, working a little bit in a movie and then having no job and they could file. And California, that was allowed. But the, the ruling stood firm that I, they denied my ability to collect unemployment. Now, that's really important when you think back to the minor leagues and how little money we made. How could you support a family if you couldn't get any money coming in right away after the season? It would take time to find a job if anybody would hire you because you're going to be leaving in March. And it was a constant it was a constant drain on people's emotions. Uh, my first year, I saw a pitcher throw a no-hitter for us in Stockton by the name of Johnny Allen. The following year, he didn't come back. His wife had issued an ultimatum. It's either me or baseball. I'm not going through the packing up and no money and da da da, da and all that. And they had a couple of kids. So that was really important. That was an important document in, in my history that I could not file for unemployment. It was fought years later. I don't quite know when it changed, but a guy with money, oh, I got to get back to, to that aspect, the amount of money. I wanted to have an attorney. And so I called the Major League Players Association. They wouldn't give me a penny. I was not a major leaguer. I called the Minor League Association. They didn't have any money, so they wouldn't pay for it. I called lawyers in Elmira, New York, that love to hang around and rub elbows with us ballplayers. Nobody would take a pro bono. I was stuck. I had no money. I had no money yeah. coming in. How am I going to afford a lawyer? So you give up. And again, getting back to the importance of that uh, overturning, because somebody fought it. I think it was uh, Lee Myers, who I write about in my book. Uh, he married uh, Mamie, <clears throat> Mamie Van Dorn. And Lee had money, and I believe it was he that finally broke the back and uh, established a precedent where if you qualified under the state law, you could get unemployment. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a different time, right? It was a different time in terms of free agency and different term. You know, the minor league players are just starting to get some inroads, right? They're starting to get some money for housing and some other essentials and you know i think it's still the same and for those guys right they're not making a lot of money in the minor leagues no i last year i i did some research and relatively speaking and again adjusting for inflation the differential between what we were paid and what's paid today in the minor leagues is about the same yeah um and again it's the rich get richer if you sign for a big bonus and you have the creds then uh, you know you move quicker. You make you go up in league status uh, classification. Therefore, you're making more money. 
but the guy trying to make it, hanging on, played at Appalachian State, you know, got drafted in the 47th round, making 500 bucks a month. You know, that's that hasn't changed. Right. It's, so it's I, a natural weeding out process. Baseball expects to happen. And then even when you played, you know, and, and, and you covered this in the book, and it's kind of around with, with some of the stuff that we're 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 interested in terms of uh, autographs and collecting. You had to go out and, and do uh, sign sign autographs and do promotional appearances, and you didn't get any extra money for that. No, not a bit. You were ordered where to go. And the funny part of my book is when I appeared in a fashion show, yeah, in, uh, in Rochester on Father's Day, and uh, we didn't get paid. We were ordered to be there or be fined. So we all show up at uh, McCurdy's department store and they have a lady fashion consultant from New York City showing us how to walk the runway. And uh, it's elevated. It's just like you see in you know, a regular fashion show. So when it came my time, I started down the runway and all of a sudden cat calls start happening. <laughs> I had on a sheer shirt, call it a blouse with see-through. And I didn't have uh, my t-shirt on and I had a really tight pair of pants and my hips wiggled anyway from a back injury in 64 in Appleton. And it's just the mo natural motion I had. And I got down to the end of the runway and uh, did the turn. And uh, again, whistles coming out and my new wife, we got married in spring training of that year in 69. She's mortified. I can see her. She's got her head in her hands. You know, the, her husband is producing this kind of reaction. And so I got, I came back, I did another facing turn uh, just to show off that, you know, I was really digging this modeling thing. Yep. And I'm surprised they didn't have to haul me off the stage. And that was my modeling career. Well, guys, if you want to check out uh, more stories from Tim, check out his book. It's called Beating About the Bushes. It's available on uh, Amazon. It's Tim Summer, S-O-M-M-E-R, Beating About the Bushes, available on Amazon. It's the uh, minor league baseball in the 60s. Tim played eight seasons, primarily in the Baltimore Orioles uh, organization, and he shares a ton of stories. Tim, I want to thank you for your time today. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed the book, and it was nice to uh, meet you and learn about uh, your, <laughs> your life. It was really interesting. Thanks, Jeff. This was really fun, believe me. <laughs> All right. Thank, thank you, sir. Well, I hope you enjoyed my interview with former minor league pitcher and author of Beating About the Bushes, Tim Sommer. His book is available on Amazon. That wraps up the show. Drew and I are at the National this week. We'll be back next week with all our regular segments. For now, wishing everyone many happy returns. We'll see you next week.